Hello, and welcome to Sobertown Podcast. I'm your host, Viv, and some of you know me as Sober I Thrive. Make sure to visit our website on SobertownPodcast.com. You will find our free Zoom calendars, Todd's modules for your sober toolbox, sober recovery stories, and our link to the Sobertown Facebook group on SobertownPodcast.com. I'll chat with guests and community members about topics related to sobriety and recovery. There are also a couple of sober communities called Boom, Rethink the Drink, and the I Am Sober app, where most of our website contributors met for SoberTownPodcast.com. Hello, SoberTown. I'm excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Greg Hammer. He is a professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, a best-selling author of the book called Gain Without Pain, The Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals, and he is also the mindfulness expert. Welcome to Sobertown, Dr. Hammer. Wonderful to be with you, Viv. Thank you. I am excited about your book. I've ordered it myself. I know it says Handbook for Healthcare Professionals, which among Sobertown listeners, there is a vast amount of healthcare professionals. But what really piqued my interest and really spoke to me was your GAIN method. Can you please explain the GAIN method to all of us here at Sobertown? Of course. You know, I, I joined the WellMD program at Stanford 10 years ago or so, and that is a group that was convened by the university and the hospital to address the growing prevalence of burnout amongst physicians. And I've been very interested in wellness in every aspect for my whole adult life. I, I became a vegetarian when I was 18. I've always been a physical fitness enthusiast. I studied nutrition at university. It's my undergraduate degree is actually in nutritional science. And I've been very interested in spirituality also since I was a teenager and been a student of Advaita or non-duality for the last 10 or 12 years. So as part of WellMD, I was asked to give a talk to a national a group of hospital administrators at their national meeting. And then I was asked to give another talk and another talk and another talk. And meanwhile, I was sort of formulating what I thought were the essential components of a wellness practice, really of personal resilience. So this is a bit of a digression, but the WellMD rubric for professional fulfillment includes three sort of overlapping circles, if you can imagine that image, sort of like the Olympic rings, but three instead of five. And they represent the culture in which we work, the culture of medicine, which includes a lot of microaggressions, macroaggressions, you know, some discriminatory history and, and ongoing issues. So culture is one of the rings, if you will. Another one is efficiency of practice because the way we practice medicine, and this applies to really all walks of life to some degree, really affects our professional fulfillment. For example, if you're a clinic doctor and you're told you have to see more patients every hour, but you're not given any more exam rooms or staff to turn the rooms over and so on, what happens is your patients end up sitting in the waiting room for a longer and longer period of time. They're unhappy. Your so-called press gainy scores go down. So you're, you're held responsible for something over which you have no control. And the inefficiency of practice, which is growing as more patients are added to your template, for example, keeps you in the clinic well after hours, and then also ex extends the amount of time you have to spend charting. So there's a lot of inefficiency there, as it is also in my areas in the operating room as a pediatric cardiac anesthesiologist and intensive care physician. When things are inefficient, whether it's turnover between cases or prolonged sign out at the end of the day, and one ends up being at work for an hour, hour and a half more than might be necessary and missing dinner with your family and missing children's music performances and other things, 
it's going to be hard to be fulfilled. So culture efficiency. And then the third ring, which is really my area of interest, is personal resilience. And I think that's what we're really talking about today. And so I'm giving lots of talks and then I have some sabbatical time and I'm thinking, well, my message seems to be resonating with people regarding personal resilience. How can I get the message out even more? And so I decided to write the book. So again, I'm really focused on how can I make this message simple? What are the essential ingredients to personal resilience and in fact, happiness? And I like acronyms. We have tons of acronyms in medicine. If you came on rounds in the intensive care unit, you might not understand anything that was said for several minutes while the resident is presenting their patient because it's all in acronyms. So, you know, and I've, I've read Deepak Chopra's work and, and been a student of Buddhism, et cetera. And there are lots of things to remember, 10 ways of this, 12 steps to that. Of course, you're very familiar with 12 steps. And I always find it hard to remember that many concepts. So I, I boiled it down to what I, I thought were the essential four concepts and created this acronym that represents those four concepts. And the acronym, as you suggested, is GAIN. So that was a very long-winded way of me getting to the explanation of the GAIN acronym. And those four elements, Viv, are gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment, forming the acronym GAIN. And, and we can talk about those. They're, they're really certainly not of my own device. They are core elements in all religious and philosophic traditions. Um, I know that they're embedded in what you teach and undoubtedly practice yourself. For example, acceptance involves what the serenity prayer would have us know. And that is, we have to differentiate between that which we can change and that which we cannot change and have the wisdom to really understand the difference and learn to accept what we cannot change. And so that's the A in gain, which is acceptance. So I, I invoke the serenity prayer often, but I think the other elements, gratitude, intention, and non-judgment are also interwoven into what you discuss as well. Yeah, if you would be so kind as to break down the the game. I know we already discussed the A, which is super important. Yes, acceptance. That's a big one. But if you can break it down for us. Sure. Well, you know, again, gratitude is interwoven. It's really an essential part of happiness, which is really what we're talking about. There's one thing that I guess we're almost up to 8 billion souls on the planet. The one thing that all almost 8 billion of us want is happiness. And gratitude is intrinsic to happiness. We know that one can be poor and happy. One can be physically challenged and happy. But you cannot even imagine somebody who's ungrateful and happy. So gratitude and happiness are really linked. And we all have much for which to be grateful. I think that you know, we have all had firsthand or secondhand experience with a lot of pain and suffering in the world in the last several years in particular, I think perhaps more so than any other period in my life. And to the extent that we have come through this period, not that anything is over, life is a process after all, but the fact that we're still here and we've fared much better than many people about whom we've learned around the world gives us cause to be grateful for the, for the good things in our life. So gratitude is essential. Acceptance also. Pain is as much a part of life as joy. And, you know, before we went live, you and I were talking about various things, including that my son passed away six years ago at the age of 29, and he was an addict. And you, as much as anyone else, are very familiar with what a parent goes through when you have a teenager with a serious substance abuse problem that evolves into an, a young adult in their 20s. And the various cycles one goes through as a parent in terms of perhaps starting with tough love and rules and so on, and eventually evolving to acceptance and kindness 
you know, love, support. So it's a process. But the pain of his passing, for example, will always be there. But there's a formula in my book, in the book we're discussing, my first book, which is, and you know, we love formulas in medicine. Suffering equals pain times resistance. Suffering equals pain times resistance. The pain is there. And the more we resist it, the more we suffer. So I, for example, often picture, and I'm not a Christian per se, although I, I certainly believe in and hope to embody all the positive Christian principles. But I, I think of and sometimes refer to Jesus on the cross with stakes through his hands and feet. And the pain must have been unimaginable. But what I do imagine is that he had fully accepted his circumstances and, and those of his fellow men and women, brothers and sisters. And so through that acceptance, and acceptance and resistance can be considered opposites. So full acceptance means lowering your resistance to zero. And since suffering equals pain times resistance, if resistance is zero, acceptance is complete, then suffering goes away as well. And so that's how I picture it. So we need to, you know, again, as the serenity prayer would, would have it, we need to discern between what we can change and what we cannot change. And there's a lot in life that we cannot change that the world presents to us that does not apparently comport with our wants and needs. So we need to be accepting. So gratitude, acceptance, intention. Why is intention requisite? I love Dr. John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, and he's certainly one of the fathers of mindfulness. He started the mindfulness-based stress reduction program in Massachusetts in the late 1970s, and he's one of my heroes. And he defined mindfulness as awareness of the present moment on purpose non-judgmentally. So there are at least three key uh, lessons and, and notions of import there. Mindfulness, or I would posit happiness, is awareness of the present moment. And being present is being happy. Happiness lives in the only moment we ever truly experience, which is this one, the present moment. So that's essential, being aware of the present moment. On purpose, why on purpose? Well, being purposeful is being intentional. And why do we have to have purpose? Why do we have to have intention? The reason is that our brains are hardwired over tens of thousands of years of evolution to have neural circuitry that apparently conflicts with our ability to be happy. And, and those circuits include those that code for our negativity bias and our distraction with the past and future. So we all have a negativity bias. We tend to focus on the negative and forget about the positive. And there's stories about that in the chapter on intention in my book. We all know lots of examples. I work with a, a, a resident one day in the operating room. We have four challenging surgical cases. She does everything extremely well beyond her years of training, puts in tubes and catheters and an epidural and a specialized endotracheal tube and everything is flawless. We did have one infant. She couldn't get the catheter in the baby's artery in the wrist. And so I had to step in and do that. But she did everything else flawlessly, not only the procedures, but just planning the anesthetic and the patients were comfortable and stable at the end of all the, all the cases. And I talked to her the next day. I, I, I debriefed her with her at the end of the day and told her what a great job she did. And then I spoke with her the next day. And turns out she went home after that day, that long day in the operating room. She had dinner with her husband. She was preparing to go to bed. And did she think of all the things that went well that day? which were 90 plus percent of everything she could have possibly done flawlessly went, went almost flawlessly. No, she focuses on that one little procedure in the baby that she had to ask my help for. And that's a good example of the negativity bias. We'll pick out that one little negative thing and obsess over it. We get out of the bed in the morning and we might have a little ache or pain and we start focusing on that right away. My knee is sore, my, my back is stiff. 
And then we start to fixate on that. And it sort of governs our mood for the first part of the morning. And are we thinking instead of all the things that are going miraculously well with our health, with our with our body, the complexity of which is beyond our imagination? It's a miracle that we get out of bed at all in the morning. So no, of course, we don't focus on that. We focus on the one little negative thing. So that's the way our brains are wired. And the other way they're wired is that we overthink the past and the future. So it's adaptive to think of the past and remember wonderful times with loved ones, et cetera. And it's even important to recognize our mistakes to the extent that we learn from them. And likewise, with the future, we adaptively plan to put bread on the table. We plan and look forward to good times with friends and family. But beyond that, we obsess over the future. And with our negativity bias, we think of the worst thing that can happen. We catastrophize. And this generates a lot of fear and anxiety. And our obsession with the past and our negativity bias generates a lot of shame, regret, low self-esteem, and depression. So it's this overthinking of the past that generates depression and overthinking of the future that generates fear and anxiety. So in order to be present and more positive, we have to have a plan, okay? If we don't have a plan, we simply lapse into the old way of thinking, which is negative and distracted. So we have to have intention. And finally, and I know this is a long-winded explanation, but non-judgment, the end and gain. Why is that so important? You know, we're constantly judging things in our environment and notably ourselves. And again, our negativity bias creeps in. And so we often judge things negatively. We're, we're quick to judge others negatively and we are our own harshest critics. And so in order to be happy, we need to learn to drop the judgments. Judgment is just a way of coloring everything we observe with our own set of biases and preconceptions. So we're not really seeing things the way they truly are. And we're generating unhappiness by being negative and, and judgmental, especially of ourselves. So, you know, we have part of the gain practice is an exercise which we do, which reminds us and connects us to being non-judgmental. So gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. Oh, that's a beautiful breakdown. Thank you so much. I love that. And the way that you put it together is doing it first thing in the morning. As you arise, you wake up. In, in my own life, I can say this, that the biggest step for the, the G in, in gain is gratitude. And in sober community, just waking up sober and ending the day sober is just, that's the game changer in game. So you teaching this and how, how does in three minutes a day improve the negative thoughts and rewire our brains? Good question. Well, you know, I, I describe the way, the way, some of the ways I believe our brains are hardwired because we all have this negativity bias. We all have this obsessive distraction with the past and future. So the first message is really for anybody who's listening to this, don't feel like these are your dirty little secrets. Don't feel like I'm ashamed that I'm negative, that I tend to be depressed or that I'm so distracted. I'm kind of obsessive, compulsive about lists of things I have to do later or tomorrow. And, you know, also obsessive about ruminating over my mistakes and, and judging myself harshly. Everybody thinks this way. This is the way the human brain is hardwired. And we could talk about, you know, plausible evolutionary reasons for that. For example, you know, I see early Homo sapiens 100,000 years ago sitting in their cave trying to keep the fire going and imagining that there's a saber-toothed tiger lurking outside the mouth of the cave. I, I actually was reading somebody else's work and they used the same analogy, which I thought was interesting, but the saber-toothed tiger analogy. So, you know, the caveman or woman is, is tending to their family and imagining there might be a saber-toothed tiger outside the mouth of their cave. So they're, they're fearing the worst in a way. They're, they're, they're using 
a negativity, a wariness, they're sort of catastrophizing. However, there may well have been a saber-toothed tiger outside the mouth of their cave. I mean, things at that time were such. So if they worried about that a bit and they maybe sort of planned for how to keep themselves alive under those circumstances, then they lived longer, they had more offspring, and the genes that encode for these characteristics were propagated in the population. And here we are, fast forward 100,000 years later, we're sort of stuck with these ways of thinking that are not necessarily adaptive anymore. We don't, most of us, unless we live in a place that's constantly being bombed, for example, which is unfortunately the case for some of us, we don't have a saber-toothed tiger lurking outside the mouth of the cave. We live in a relatively safe environment. And so and in, in the end, the good news is that this is the way our brains are hardwired. That may be the bad news, although there's certainly good things about the brain, way our brains are wired. But the good news with this in mind is that our brains have this wonderful quality called neuroplasticity. So that means we can actually take charge and change the way we think. And so the game practice is meant to be just a baby step toward rewiring our brains one little bit at a time. You know, our brains became wired this way over tens of thousands of years. We're not going to change that overnight. So we should have no expectations and accept the fact that this is the way our brains are and that changes are going to be made in very tiny increments. This is the way we learn in small steps through repetition. So with that in mind, you know, this three-minute practice is a step toward rewiring our brain. And, and so I can sort of walk you through what it might look like, what it looks like for me. I wake up in the morning, I open the blinds. Fortunately, at this time of the year, there's sunlight coming in, which is awakening and beautiful and makes me grateful. And then I go and do my morning hygiene thing. And then I sit in one of a couple of places in my house. I happen to have a meditation room, but I might just sit on the bench in my, in my bedroom with my little dog at my feet or in his bed, looking up at me, wondering why I'm sitting there. But basically we get up, we open the blinds, we do our morning thing. We find a comfortable place to sit and we're going to do a three minute contemplative meditation. And, and I'll digress by saying that many people think meditation means you have to sit for a half hour, perfectly still, not scratching an itch, possibly in an uncomfortable position while banishing all thoughts from your mind. And that is not what meditation is, but that is what dissuades many people from even trying it or leads many people to feel that they failed at it because they can't stop thinking or they can't sit comfortably for 30 minutes. So I'm going to remedy that by only having you sit, albeit in a comfortable position for three minutes. And if you want to sit longer and extend the practice, that's fine, but can be done in three minutes. And I'm going to give you things to think about. So you're not resisting thought. You're actually embracing thought. Okay. So we are sitting in a comfortable place. We close our eyes. We begin to focus on the breath. So we are going to slow our breath, perhaps inhaling through our nose to a count of three, pausing to a count of three, and slowly relaxing and letting the breath escape through our nose or mouth to a count of four. So breathing into a count of three, pausing to a count of three, exhaling to a count of four. And that makes the breath a 10 second cycle. So our breathing rate is six per minute. And when we slow our respiratory rate, we activate something called our parasympathetic nervous system. And that's the side of the nervous system that keeps the sympathetic nervous system in check. The sympathetic nervous system is the so-called fight or flight side of the nervous system. And the parasympathetic nervous system, which we activate by slow, deep breathing into our belly, slows our heart rate, lowers our blood pressure, decreases the amount of adrenaline and cortisol in our body, therefore decreases our blood sugar, decreases our stress response. So the slow, intentional breathing has benefits just in and of itself, and it's something we can do anytime we think of it. And remarkably, we can go a day or days on end without actually taking a really deep breath, because 
we carry the stress we experience in our bodies, in our muscles, the muscles of our chest and abdomen. And this prevents us from really taking a deep breath. And when we don't breathe deeply, the little microscopic air sacs in our lungs tend to collapse. Those little air sacs are called alveoli. And when they collapse, it's called atelectasis. And this actually decreases the amount of oxygen in our blood. So beside activating our parasympathetic nervous system, this slow, deep, deliberate, intentional breathing is actually increasing the oxygen we're delivering to our brain and other tissues. So we, we sit with the breath, slowing it for several breaths. And then as we continue to be mindful of our slow, deep breathing, we begin to contemplate that for which we're grateful, the G in gain, gratitude. So we might say, as you suggested, I'm grateful to be sober this morning. I'm grateful to be alive this morning. I'm grateful for this day. I'm lucky enough to be on the right side of the grass today. I'm grateful for my relative health, for loved ones in my life, for my friends, for my community, for my job in some cases. It, for me, it's a privilege to do what I do, so I'm grateful for that. So we all have much for which to be grateful. So we spend 30 or 45 seconds contemplating that for which we're grateful. Then we transition to acceptance. And again, pain is as much a part of our life as joy. And so we think of something uncomfortable or painful. For me, it's the death of my son that often comes first. That may be too big a bite for some people. So we can just use a, perhaps an uncomfortable conversation we had with a friend yesterday, something that brought us a degree of discomfort or pain. And we take this experience and we actually, as we sit with our eyes closed, breathing deeply, we slowly bring this experience closer and closer. We imagine opening our chest, opening our heart and bringing this experience, this sensation, this discomfort into our heart and embracing it, nurturing it with our heart, sitting with it, linking it to our breath. And what we discover is the pain is not as bad as we imagined when we were resisting it in particular. And we ask ourselves the question, can I live with this pain forever? And at some point, the answer is yes. And so we transition to the I and gain, which is intention. So for five or 10 or 15 seconds, we might actually just train ourselves to focus on our present experience, our present sensations. So we may focus on the pressure of the chair against our body the tingling on the soles of our feet, the sound in the distance of an airplane passing by. That's often something I notice because I'm halfway in between San Francisco and San Jose airports. So there's often an airplane going by in the distance. We focus on our current sensations, including touch, hearing. We may notice the slightly sweet smell of the air that we're breathing as we breathe deeply. And we spend five, 10, 15 seconds, just focused on our current sensation. It's a way of rewiring our brain to be present. And then we transition our thoughts to just being more positive, that it, our plan includes looking at the bright side, learning to be appreciative and grateful. So these gain elements are interwoven. Gratitude and intention, for example, acceptance and gratitude and intention. And then finally, we transition to non-judgment. And here, one simple tool would be to, as we breathe slowly and deeply, picture one of these lovely NASA images of the Earth, apparently suspended in space. It's a beautiful planet, but it is, after all, just a planet. It's neither good nor bad. Things don't have to be good or bad. They simply are what they are. The Earth is just a planet. It simply is what it is. It is neither good nor bad. And then it's only logical for me to think, I'm just a human being. I am just the person that I am. I am neither good nor bad. I simply am. And then we may just repeat the phrase, I am, as we again bring our focus to the breath. Inhaling to a count of three, pausing to a count of three, exhaling effortlessly to a count of four, I am. And we repeat this a few times. And then we slowly open our eyes and we're ready to go out in the world. And really focusing on the breath for 15 seconds, 
30 seconds, and then focusing on gratitude, acceptance, intention, non-judgment, each for 30 or 45 seconds, and then back to the breath briefly, opening our eyes. Really, that can be done in as little as three minutes. And what happens, Viv, is that we've begun to rewire our brains. So as we do this day after day, week after week, when we are being ungrateful or resisting or unintentional, lapsing into our old way of thinking or judgmental, a little light bulb goes off and we recognize where our thoughts are taking us. And we simply drop that thought and we, we smile to ourselves for our, you know, lapsing into our old habits. We can be amused by it. We get a little dopamine hit. So something that would have been an unpleasant sensation becomes a pleasant sensation, this recognition, this light bulb moment. We're sort of proud of ourselves for the recognition of this lapsing into our old ways of thinking. And so the more we do this practice, the more we are actually rewiring our brains and the more readily we redirect our thoughts in a, in a positive way. That's a phenomenal explanation. Thank you so much. Everything that you explained is, especially the non-judgmental part, that we are not our thoughts and the thoughts are like clouds, but we are the whole sky. And I think that that is just so beautiful to implement this three-minute meditation each morning to begin our day. Now, over time, how important is it to take these baby steps on our journey of intentional living? What have you seen? Well, I'll just go back to the notion, Viv, that what we're doing is rewiring our brains. And, you know, having been a professor at Stanford for almost 30 years, I recognize the way that we learn. I recognize the way that my medical students, residents, and fellows learn, that we all learn. We learn in small increments. I've given, you know, thousands of lectures and I used to pack too much into a 45 minute or 50 minute lecture. Uh, and I learned that the way that those to whom I'm speaking will absorb what I'm saying is in relatively small increments. And so I usually narrow it down to three or four points, just like the GAIN acronym is four components. You know, maybe I can teach three or four ideas well in the next 50 minutes and add some humor or what have you. But if you try to pack too much in, uh, it all gets lost. And so, you know, I think that's, that's one of the lessons that we're just rewiring the brain in baby steps. That's the way we, that we learn. Oh, that's beautiful. Because I personally, being in the sober community or being an alcoholic, because that is the the way and the label that I am comfortable with for myself. And addiction in itself is ritualized. So much so as we ritualized the addiction and the action, we're creatures of habit, just like you said. So we can actually ritualize this three-minute meditation going into gratitude, going into acceptance, going into intention and the non-judgmental part, how, how do we truly discover and set intentions? What is the difference between intentions and goals? That's a good question, Viv. Goals are something that are off in the distance. So, you know, goal might be something we set as a New Year's resolution. You know, this year I want to lose 10 pounds. This year, I want to be able to pedal up that hill. So it's something that's kind of a prolonged process generally, and, and there's an end point to it. And the risk of setting goals is that we may not succeed, and, and therefore we feel like a failure. Whereas intention is something that's happening right now. This is my intention. Well, if this is my intention, this is my expression of purposefulness, you can't take that away from me. There is no failure. This is my intention. It's right now. And it's something I can get my arms around. It's, you know, it's very easy for us to put off the path toward satisfying our goals, right? Okay. 
this year I want to lose 10 pounds, but I don't have, I could start tomorrow. Okay. Intentions or purposefulness, something that we are practicing in this moment right now. And yes, we will sort of fall off the path of this particular intention from time to time, but we'll have a light bulb moment and we'll simply get back on the path. So it's something that we can write or correct immediately. It's, it's something right here, right now, that is an intention as opposed to a goal, which is a sort of a long-term thing that is, you know, often fraught with the hazard of failure. But our intentions are right here, right now. There is no failure. So over time, you're implementing your method and how, I guess my question would be, over time, rewiring the brain, implementing this on a daily basis, you have seen the difference between someone not implementing and just living life and, and just living without intention and just what we call white knuckling would be and not having a way or we're just doing it. We're staying, we're staying sober for today. But with your game method, it's a game changer because now you put purpose behind it. Is that correct? Well, yes, I, I think that purpose is integral to success in the path of rewiring our brain. And again, there's no destination. It's like life itself is a journey. So I think as you would have it in sober living teaching, you really focus on the moment or perhaps today, one day at a time, right? I'm sober for X number of days. So I think it's important to just focus on the moment, focus on today and focus on these principles. And so when I'm walking down the hall and I'm going into a meeting and I'm meeting with my chairman or, you know, one is meeting with their boss is a little bit of anxiety. Just go while we're walking down the hall, even while we're driving our car, while we're out for a walk, we think of something that makes us feel anxious. Go to the breath. The breath itself has magical qualities. Again, when we slow it down, when we're intentional about taking deep breaths through our nose, into a count of three, pausing to a count of three, out to a count of four, breathing into our belly, just the idea of breathing in this way activates our parasympathetic nervous system, decreases the adrenaline in our body, lowers our heart rate, our blood pressure, our level of anxiety. And what happens with the game practice, and this is not unique to the game practice, of course, this is true with meditation and, and other practices, whereby the breath is integral and, and sort of first and foremost, when we focus on our breath, we will automatically be embracing gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. In other words, these all become linked. And we are, in fact, you know, creatures of programmed ways of thinking. So, you know, many of us may remember Pavlov's experiment with dogs, where he rang a bell as he fed them, and then eventually rang the bell without feeding them and they salivated anyway, even though there was no food in front of them. So it's just this linking of the bell and the food and the physiologic process of salivating and so on, expecting the food. These become linked. This is called a conditioned response. So the conditioned response in the case I'm describing is actually going to the breath and the other responses associated with the deep breathing include the thoughts of gratitude, acceptance, intention, non-judgment. So when we go to our breath during this walk down the hall, these other elements come to us as well. We're reminded to be grateful, reminded to be grateful the fact that we're ambulatory and we're able to walk down the hall, to be grateful that we have this job, that we, you know, it includes having a boss and responsibilities and so on, but it beats the alternative. So just going to the breath gives us this conditioned response to the other elements of the practice. Thank you for that explanation, because I think your book is fascinating in the sense of it gives us another choice, because in the beginning of the of my journey, I didn't even know where to begin. 
So with your book, you've outlined for many of us where to begin without the overwhelmment of it. How do you discover what you truly want and how to set the intentions about that? Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Well, you know, we all, we may want different things on sort of the micro level, but big picture, we all want the same thing. As I said, we all want to be happy. And Dr. John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness applies to happiness. It could well just be happiness is awareness of the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. So, you know, whether we, you know, we want different things in terms of, you know, we want three children, we want, you know, objects, relationships, what have you. The big picture is we all want the same thing. We all want to be happy. So again, you know, it's a great way to understand what we need to be happy, what our impediments to happiness are, and then commit to taking baby steps along this path toward that which we all want, which is happiness. And I think that, you know, your programs for sober living are a beautiful example of of this process. It's really one day at a time. First, identifying what are the issues that apparently interfere with our ability to be successful when we have addictions, for example. So you first have to identify what the issues are. And I would really posit that the issues for all of us are simple and we all share them. We share this negativity bias. We share this obsession, this distraction with the past and future. And when you put that together with our negativity bias, you get shame, regret, low self-esteem, depression as it pertains to our obsession with the past. And you get fear and anxiety with regard to our obsession with the future. We all share these ways of thinking. They're hardwired into our brains. So what we all want is a path toward rewiring our brain en route to being a happier person. And, you know, that's your commitment. That's your program. And it is my commitment and, and the program that we're discussing at the moment also. I think this really applies to, to all of us. I agree with you and thank you so much for that because sometimes I had felt in the beginning, and I've discussed this with many of us in our community, that the negativity part was part of the addiction. We needed to find something to be negative about to drink at. So just because we put down the addiction, the mind continued on the, if you will, hamster wheel of the negative thinking. Right. Because it doesn't change because I put down whatever, whatever the addiction was. So in the beginning, it feels, is there something wrong with me? But as you just described it beautifully, eloquently, and kindly, that we're all hardwired. There's nothing wrong. It's just primal. But there's a way out to choose our thought. Right. Well, this is why, you know, again, I go back to the gain elements. When we, what are we doing in a way when we have this urge to reach for a substance? And by the way, it could be not just a substance, it could be a relationship, could be an object. So we can be addicted to shopping. You know, we can be addicted to the acquisition of objects. We could be addicted to sex, of course. And in a way, that's an addiction to relationships, among other things. So we first have to identify what, why it is that we are reaching for these substances, objects, and relationships. And we're reaching for them in order to become fulfilled, to become happier. But of course, we're not going to find happiness through substances, objects, and relationships. We need to identify that happiness comes from within. Happiness comes from, you know, the Buddhist or non-dual way of addressing the issue we're discussing is that the happiness is already there. The happiness is our true nature. The veil, apparent veil to our happiness comes from this idea that we're a separate self, that we're this separate being disconnected from 
other beings. And therefore, we appear to be born, we appear to live for a time, and we appear to die or disappear. And that idea leads to all suffering in reality. And when we practice gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment, we are actually dissolving this sense of being a separate self. So when we are grateful for our inherent connection to other humans, to those in our family, our friends, our loving community, we are dissolving the sense of being a separate self. When we're accepting the pain that we feel, we're dissolving the sense of being a separate self. When we take baby steps toward being present and positive, we're dissolving the sense of being a separate self. And when we learn to drop judgment and see things the way they really are in the present moment without judgment, we're dissolving the sense of being a separate self. So I think really the first step toward recovery is the recognition that our urge to reach for substances, objects, and relationships is never going to be fulfilled. We are never going to become happy by attempting to fulfill that urge or those urges. The key to happiness is to simply recognize our true nature. And we can do that through the gain practice without even necessarily conceiving of this separate self notion, this sort of Buddhist con concept, which is really not just Buddhist. It's, it's Christian, it's Judaic, it's, you know, Muslim. It's really what all religions prophesize by virtue of there being a God. And, you know, to me, God is in fact everything. God is consciousness. God is awareness. God is being. And we are just temporary manifestations of that consciousness. And so we're not separate selves. We're like eddies in a stream, the stream being God or consciousness or love or awareness or being. We are a little eddy that appears to form and then appears to disappear, but it's really never forming or disappearing. It's only part of the stream. It can't be removed from the, from the stream. It's not a separate entity. It's really just the stream. And, and that's what we are as well. But again, I think just focusing on something we can easily get our arms around, like the breath, the gain practice, we are actually taking baby steps toward that awareness. Oh, thank you so much for that. Yes, yeah, it, it's a, the gain method is something that we can implement, if, I, if I'm understanding correctly in our own beingness, in our own moment, in our own, if you will, separateness. But the all is, there's a saying that says connection beats addiction. So mm. if we're all in this gain method, if we're all practicing this, when we all come together as one, then we've all achieved movement forward, the non-judgmental, the peace, the gratitude, and all the beautiful things that come with having community. Yeah, I love that. You said connection beats addiction. Yes. Yes. Again, connection is dissolution of the sense of being a separate self. And it is, I know we've, you know, we sort of a ways away from where we started in this conversation, but I think it's in what we're describing now is integral to what the subject matter is. And that is that connection with others, obviously, is, is a process of dissolution of the separate self. Those moments of connectedness, whether it's with other people, a dog that we love, a walk in nature, where we're walking through the forest, we're appreciating the softness of the floor of pine needles and the slightly sweet scent of the trees and leaves and the beautiful visual of the light filtering through the canopy of leaves at the top of these tall trees, that majesty just, you know, we are in the present moment. 
we are experiencing disillusion of the separate self. And there is love, there is God, and there is happiness. And that's all we really want. And the good news is it's accessible, right? It's accessible. We can take that walk in the forest. We can hold that dog in our lap or seated next to us. We can commune with other people. So this loss of separation is always accessible. Thank you. Thank you. It is. It, it definitely is. I cannot wait to receive your book. I'm excited. Gain Without Pain, The Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. But surely it is adaptable to everyone, all our listeners and beyond. So I thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hammer. You have been just so welcoming and so heartwarming. And I just wanted to thank you for your time and being here and giving Sobertown and our listeners the opportunity to gain access to your book. We'll have all wow. the, the links for you for, for this podcast. So we have all the links and we'll have all the information, the website and everything where and how to get a hold of Dr. Greg Hammer. Niv, it's been my pleasure. Be happy to join you anytime. And in fact, I'd be happy to meet with, you know, groups of those committed to sober living in person or virtually. So it's something that I would be more than happy to do with your listeners. So it's obviously, as my son passed away related to substance abuse, addiction, um, it's a it's an area that's very near and dear to me, and I'm happy to make myself available to further the discussion, let's say. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss, so sorry for your loss, but just know that we would love to have you. We have our virtual Zooms where we have Connection Beats Addiction, Sobertown Zooms, and yeah, definitely, we would love to have you on in a discussion. So listeners, look out for that. We will be having Dr. Greg Hammer join us and we can expand and have a Q&A with him. I would love that. Thank you so much for your time and have a fabulous afternoon. Thank you, Viv. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, tell a friend or someone you know pass this podcast on. And my information is Viv, founder of SoberIThrive.org. I'm an internationally certified in addiction recovery, other known as a sober coach and a life coach too. My certifications encompass the neuroscience of joyful recovery, roots of addictions, alcohol and its effects, Dynamics of Professional Recovery Coaching, Motivation to Change, Right Thinking in Recovery, Family Issues in Recovery, Codependent Behaviors in Addiction, and Ethical and Legal Issues in Professional Recovery Coaching. Go to my website, SoberIThrive.org, and book your free, confidential, 30-minute call. We can help create the sober warrior within you.